you have entered the Muni Matrix. Please welcome your hosts, Matthew Gerstenfeld and Michael Lieberman, co-founders of MuniChain. Welcome to the ninth episode of the Muni Matrix. Today we are joined by Mark Jaffe, a policy analyst working at the Cato Institute. But before we dive in, first a quick disclaimer. The Muni Matrix is for informational purposes only. Any opinions expressed on this episode should not be relied upon for investment purposes. Your use of the information is at your sole risk. Welcome, Mark Jaffe. So nice to have you on the Muni Matrix. I can't wait to dig into this episode and talk about everything related to municipal bond data, financial data, etc. But figured first we could start off by getting to know you a little bit better and letting our audience understand your role in this market. Great. Well, uh, thanks for having me, Matthew. Uh, I, I'm on my second career right now. In my first career, I worked uh, in a bunch of IT roles at banks, and I ended up at uh, Moody's Analytics doing a mixture of IT and product management. I mostly grew up in the, in the world of corporate credit risk. Uh, and uh, at Moody's Analytics and before as a customer of firms that became Moody's Analytics, I worked with a lot of tools that estimated the default probability and the uh, the expected loss on uh, bank loans and corporate bonds. I always wanted to do a second career in public policy. Uh, back in 2008, I went to San Francisco State University, got my MPA there and uh, started about 12 years ago, now writing on municipal credit conditions. And I've always tried to adopt the ideas that I learned from the experts in corporate credit analysis to uh, the world of um, of munis. And um, <laughs> munis have a long way to go, as we'll get into in this podcast, to be able to do that. Most definitely. So when we first met, Mark, I remember you were very much fixated on data in the market. And one thing we've found, you know, both at MuniChain and through my uh, former occupations is data is definitely unorganized in the market. So I really wanted to kick off, just broadly speaking, what is fundamental data for munis and what does that mean to people? So I think in of fundamental data, you know, starting in the equity space and then adopting it to munis. So you think of you know, fundamental versus technical. So technical, you know, we're looking at charts, momentum, that sort of thing. With fundamental, we're looking at what are the finances of, of the company and what are the economic factors and other, you know, market factors that might uh, change those those finances. So we can think in terms of is the uh, are the securities that that company is issuing are there are they rich or cheap? You know, is their fundamental value rich or cheap relative to what they're actually trading at? So when we think in terms of fixed income and you know munis, especially, we're thinking in terms of just default probability and recovery, right? Because the best outcome you can get is uh, all the contracted principal and interest pays. So the thing you have to worry about is what is the probability that that won't happen, and then if it if uh, there is a default, you know, how much money might you lose? And so fundamental data, you know, in that context 
is the financial condition of the municipal issuer, and that you know is obviously could be a state, city, or county. It can also be you know a special district, and it can even be a nonprofit, right? You have a really large uh, array of uh, issuers in the in the municipal market, and then the you know economic factors like what's going on in the regional economy, even what's going on in the in the national economy. You know what's happening with population trends in that particular area. So it's those kinds of factors that you want to sort of pull together with the underlying financials that the, the the government or nonprofit has. So how is this data currently aggregated? Take a uh, school district out in California. How would they go through this process and what's missing or in your mind, what needs to be improved for the market to move forward and modernize? Right. Well, I so I tend to benchmark things against the public equity market. So, you know, I can go, and I know most people don't do this, but I can go to the SEC's website and I can download the whole set of financial statistics from 10K and 10Q forms that have been filed by all those um, companies. Now, I don't normally need to do that because a lot of third parties, you know, like Yahoo Finance and, uh, you know, Morningstar and so forth have taken that data and put it on attractive websites that make it very easy to use. So while I don't directly use that underlying data, the fact that it's there and it's there in an organized way means that it's very easy for me to look at the the fundamental factors that are affecting um, stocks, at least as far as the financial statements are concerned. When we go over to munis, we don't have that, uh, and we have, you know we have a lot of problems. But the the key one is that school district is filing a a financial statement in PDF format on Emma. So first I've got to sort of figure out where to find it on Emma. And then once I find it, I then got to pull down that PDF and try to, you know, individually pick out those um, financial statistics. So I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, um, the availability of Muni fundamental data, we see it so far behind. And why do you believe that is the case? Well, the the market uh, has tended to lag behind other financial markets technologically. I know that that's <laughs> that's a challenge, you know, that you folks uh, face with Unichain and you know other startup companies have have really been struggling with just the uh, you know the the backwardness of this particular market. Um, but there are there are there are also unique challenges around you know regulation. There's not you know one entity that can like the SEC did with. Um, uh, you know, with structured uh, data filings for the uh, public, you know, publicly traded equities, they can't just uh, say, "Hey, we gotta, you know, move forward and uh, and do things, you know, differently and more modernly." So there's really uh, a, a multiple agencies that are involved, um, and then there are a lot of interests, and unfortunately, there are a lot of interests that are very wedded to the way things have been done historically, and are you know resistant to to change. And I just want to say, you know, that's that's understandable on some level because there have been very few uh, general obligation municipal defaults. Uh, interest rates up until the last couple of years have been incredibly low. And I think there's a lot of, you know, reasonable questions that, you know, issuers can ask, well, you know, if data is more readily available, you know, how does that benefit me? I'm already paying like a rock bottom interest rate. Everyone just assumes that I'm going to, you know, be able to uh, uh, to perform on the bond. So, really, why do people need this data? 
you know, and I guess I would have a couple of responses to that. You know, one is if people don't really need this data, why are we going to all the trouble of producing annual comprehensive financial reports in the first place? And then second, you know, interest rates now have blown out. Um, and I think as we go through the 2020s, now that uh, we were beyond the, um, you know, the money that uh, came out with ARPA, I think you will see more difficult uh, financial conditions for many local governments. And it's going to be uh, more important for investors to be able to differentiate between local governments that have some level of credit risks and those that don't. So having this, this information maybe historically hasn't been so important, but as we enter this period of uh, depopulation in some parts of the country and uh, you know tougher uh, financial conditions in some parts of the country, I think there's going to be more value to having this data. So Mark, you mentioned that at some point it doesn't benefit the issuer themselves. Obviously, all eyes are now dedicated towards the FDTA, Financial Data Transparency Act. When these changes come into effect in 2027, right, who will it impact the most and who will it benefit the most overall? I think there's many different angles to actually, you know, come up with a conclusion there. But curious from your side, what is preventing the improvement currently? Well, I mean, in terms of the first question of, you know, what's the impact of the FDTA's implementation going to be? Uh, the answer is it depends. You know, it depends on on how the SEC and other regulatory agencies that are tasked with implementing the FDTA do it. Uh, you know, theoretically, what, what should happen is that the SEC will put forward a taxonomy or like a list of standardized financial statement items and then instruct, um, you know, maybe not directly issuers, but those, those uh, you know, financial advisors and, the, and other servicing issuers to make sure that financial statements are produced in a structured data format that you know complies with the the taxonomy or or list of items. So then uh, you could imagine that in 2028 or 2029, you could go to Emma and just download a, a bulk file that for X thousand number of issuers or perhaps a filtered list of those, for for example, in your portfolio that you would see all these standardized numbers in a spreadsheet, and then you'd be able to do ratio analysis on those. So that's that That would be the ideal implementation of FDTA. I think there's a big risk that instead of that, um, you know, FDTA may be limited to just the very largest issuers, uh, the biggest states and maybe a few cities, and we'll actually see very little in the way of, uh, of structured data. And I think it's really incumbent upon uh, those who, like me, have been advocating for the policy aspects of the FDTA to demonstrate to the market, and especially to issuers, that the compliance costs of this are not going to be as high as people are afraid of. And so hopefully more and more issuers will either be required to fall into this envelope or will voluntarily want to participate because they'll see it's just not that complicated to to participate in providing structured data. Right. So from our perspective, we have had conversations with many state and local governments uh, across the country, right? Generally speaking, they are underserved in terms of talent. They have uh, technology that stems from uh, the 90s or early 2000s. And 
for them, another layer of complication for them to be able to have this information readily available and have it adhere to uh, the standards set forward are our concern because of cost. So I guess in essence, with this framework, who does the burden fall on to absorb the costs? And to your point, you mentioned that the cost should be low, but what does that mean overall? Well, yeah, making the cost low is the, is the most crucial thing. And, you know, as, as, as a tech person, I think you certainly will understand that, you know, it's uh, the way you get costs down is through a lot of trial and error. You know, you develop technologies, you uh, clean them up, they evolve over a period of time and they become second nature and very low cost and very easy to use. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that there was no iPhone and no iPod. And then, uh, you know, the, the cost, the cost per feature now of an iPhone is, you know, much lower than it was before. I mean, the, 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 the MSRP of an iPhone might not have changed that much, but you're getting, you know, so much more power for the same amount of money. I remember before that, PCs. I would buy a PC in the early 1980s for five thousand dollars, you know, and that would have you know a small fraction of the functionality that a, a, a current laptop has, right? It would have you know maybe like one thousandth of the memory or like a spreadsheet. Like I, I I go all the way back to things like Lotus One Two Three and VisiCalc, which had very minimal functionality compared to the you know modern Excel. So I see it as a matter of you know let's get started evolving technologies so that they'll provide better data at lower cost. So I think, you know, before we talk about who's going to bear the cost, I just think it's really important to, instead of resisting technological progress for participants in the municipal market to embrace it, let's get out there, let's try different scenarios, you know, let's try, you know, XBRL or, or, you know, other kinds of reporting technologies to find the one that that's the best fit and, you know, uh, then, then work from there. Now, in terms of, you know, who might bear the cost of this, I don't think it necessarily falls entirely on local governments and especially smaller local governments. So, you know, we've already in the um, XBRL community have been talking to accounting, you know, system vendors who, you know, uh, provide the general ledger um, backend for our local governments. And, you know, what, what could they do? Well, uh, instead of, um, you know, doing file print to produce your financial statements say your statement of net position, you know, in, into a printed file or, a PD, you know, PDF or an Excel spreadsheet, well, why don't you print it to an XBRL file, which then can be viewed on the, on the web in HTML format. So an accounting vendor can help. And then there are a lot of specialized vendors that currently serve the 6,000 plus um, public companies that are required to produce their 10Ks and 10Qs in XBRL format. And they have specialized solutions, either desktop software, software as a service, or even uh, you know filing services where they'll actually convert your documents for you. So all of this is available. And then finally, I would say, you know, accounting firms. A lot of times, you know, accounting firms, uh, you know, do most of the work uh, of act for preparation for smaller governments. So this could be, you know, an add-on service that they provide as well. So Mark, is it safe to say for folks in our audience that aggregating financial data is on CD burner status 
or are we a little bit further or, or where, where are we overall? I think we're pre, I think we're pre CD. We're pre CD I mean, burner. I've, I've done yeah. a couple of projects, you know, I've done a couple of projects where I've had to aggregate a large amount of, uh, of data. And I'll tell you what we do. Um, you know, and I, I can tell you that I've spoken to vendors and I, I mean, I'm not going to name names on this podcast, obviously, but I know a couple of the vendors that do this aggregation and it basically ends up that you have a shared uh you have a shared folder like you know OneDrive or Dropbox or whatever you load a large number of uh, PDF actors onto it and then somebody in a developing country downloads those files and they rekey that information into a spreadsheet or a database and that's how it's done and I get, I mean, academics, a lot of academics who are in this field do it as well. They don't have those relationships with um, developing countries or they think it's not appropriate. So they get their graduate students or their undergraduate students to do it. And, you know, the quality of that is really bad because uh, the student takes a couple of months to learn what, you know, what's going on in an actor, like how to, how to sort of state things in a consistent way across a large number of actors when you're transferring that data into a spreadsheet. And then when the person's finally trained up, it's like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> you know, my work study project is done. I'm leaving you now. You got to find another student to do it. So it's really, um, uh, it's really a very primitive um, industry. And I, it, it doesn't, it, it, it's, it's incredible that this is going on in the 2020s. Okay. So I want to break this down. I want to take everyone here on a ride from CD burner to iPhone status. Okay. You talk about actually manually combing through and extracting these data points out of uh, ACK first, right? What is going to happen with the exceptionally powerful technology that is emerging right now in terms of feeding a document into uh, an AI structured format? and receiving the answers in a matter of seconds. Is that materially going to change the way analysis is happening in our market? And if so, how long? Okay, well, so I have to admit to being an AI skeptic. Uh, the reason for that is that a previous organization where I had funding to aggregate a lot of act for information, uh, we did bring on a vendor and uh, we did a very expensive pilot to you know, work with, uh, you know, machine reading, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the results were uh, around 80% accurate. So, the, you know, that's just not good enough. Um, you've got to be, you know, more at 99 plus percent accurate. Now, that was three years ago. Things may have evolved, but, you know, I see a lot of excitement over chat gpt and most of what i've been seeing on chat gpt and i know that this is constantly evolving but it's mostly around you know people typing a question you know in, into um, a box and getting uh you know a very conversational answer out of it um you know reading reading a pdf especially um very the very complicated uh, schedules and pdfs that make up the actor especially the statement of activities that can run onto multiple pages and is very heterogeneous. I'm just very skeptical about the quality of results we're going to get from that. And I don't well, know whether yeah. anyone's really going to make the investment, you know, in specifically training AIs to get this kind of municipal information because 
it's really a specialized field and I'm not sure what the, you know, the upside to a vendor is to, to do that. Well, real quickly, the, you know, part, part of my stance and I agree with you, I, I said this at our Muni Tech event um, on, on our panel was AI, you cannot ignore it, right? But it will constantly evolve. But my question is, Mark, with the FDTA rolling out, if there is some fundamental structure involved, wouldn't it make it that much easier for these types of technologies to rapidly extract and aggregate? Or you're yeah, talking about current, cur- okay. right? Right. So I'm I'm a- I'm answering the question of can you use AI to read the PDFs, which is a which is a pretty common belief in the market right now, and I sort of wanted to knock that down. Then the question is, you know, once you have data, what can an AI do for you? So yeah, so. The stuff that I've worked on in the past has involved, you know, developing a set of ratios and then calculating, say, a credit score on a zero to 100 basis that could then be mapped to, uh, or, you know, credit rating. So, for example, we might say, like, I had one methodology where anything that got between 71 and 100 on the scoring system would be a triple A. So, uh you know, fitting that or, you know, developing that model uh, was difficult. Um, There was a lot of judgment involved and it gets stale because, you know, I might have used data from say 2009 through 2018 and then I didn't have any new data. So if we bring in, you know, uh, some kind of artificial uh, intelligence approach with, you know, machine learning, you could imagine that, you know, a system will be constantly taking in new fundamental financial statements, information, learning about new municipal bankruptcies, emergency, uh, you know, financial condition declarations from states, defaults, you know, other kinds of uh, circumstances, and then be constantly, you know, updating the 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 models, the you know, updating to the you know, the regression models that are going to be needed to, you know, do accurate credit scoring. So that definitely will improve with artificial intelligence, no question about it. Right. Um, Mark, how can improved access to municipal fundamental data contribute to better risk assessment and investment decision making? Right. So, you know, again, if we think about a model that estimates the default probability or the expected loss on on a municipal bond, right? That's going to help us understand whether the municipal bond is currently trading rich or cheap. Now, I'm not talking about interest rate risk here. I'm simply talking about credit risk. But, you know, right now, you know, a single A is going to trade for less than a triple A, which is going to trade for less than, sorry, less than a double A, which is going to trade for less than triple A, all things being equal. But I'm arguing to you and to the audience that there's a lot of variation within single A, double A, and triple A, and that can be captured if you have a good model. And if you have a good model, you need to be able to feed accurate data into that model to come up with your own assessment. And then that way you can determine whether a particular municipal bond is one that you want to be adding to your portfolio or selling out of your portfolio based on your view of what the intrinsic value of that municipal security is today versus what it's being traded at or or what the bids and asks are on the market. So looking ahead in an ideal scenario, what steps should be taken by various members of the market to bridge this gap of data, right? I think a lot 
a lot is changing in this market right now. It's out in the open. Where should people be uh, dedicating their focus towards over the next few years? Well, I think first of all, you know, the the industry groups that have been objecting to first the passage of the FDTA and now the implementation of the FDTA. I really hope they'll sort of step back and take a second look. I think there's been a lot of um, you know panic. I remember. Uh, you know, it, back in uh, in 2018, when the idea of applying XBRL to municipal finance came up, uh, uh, one municipal finance firm said that it would cost tens of billions of dollars to implement. And then um, in 2022, we were given a $1.5 billion uh, price tag. And those really weren't based on um, uh, serious research. So I think, you know, scaring people in the market about how expensive this is going to be is really counterproductive. You know, I really hope that uh, that issuers uh, and those servicing issuers, you know, on the sell side will, you know, will work with people like me that want to implement this technology and want to implement it at the lowest possible cost and with the greatest possible benefit to investors, because I think that's going to create, you know, more a more liquid market. And a market where there's less mispricing ultimately, that's going to be a good a good deal for issuers and the taxpayers that are funding those issuers. Well said. Well, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Stay tuned for more information on behalf of Mark, who has wonderful insights on the evolution of this market. And we look forward to hearing more soon. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Muni Matrix by MuniChain. To be a guest or recommend a topic, please contact the Muni Matrix at munichain.com. Stay tuned for another episode.